0: Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina Artel and this is Trailer Talk. I am so excited to welcome back to have G. Oliver King return to trailer talk as we will be discussing his work as an actor, an orator, a writer, and he brings to life United States history by focusing on Black history, African American history as essential to advancing equity and empowerment. He performs the significant writings, the works of legendary and vital uh, leaders This year, Oliver is highlighting Self-Made Man, which is the motivational speech of Frederick Douglass, which was delivered by Douglass in 1859. In addition, Oliver is going to be speaking to us a bit about what brought him to Sullivan County, New York, and the Catskills, and how he chooses these texts. Additionally, he will be sharing the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and also of Lorraine Hansberry. So I want to welcome you, Oliver. Thank you for for joining me again for a Trailer Talk conversation.
1: Thank you very much for having me again.
0: You're very, very welcome. I also just want to share with our listeners that in Sullivan County, you've been very involved and throughout the region, actually, with performing and with orating these significant texts, which are very important for all of us to learn about, to hear again, whether live as you embody them and these words or through the airwaves. Oliver shares with us how he began to perform and to speak the words of Frederick Douglass. He's referring to an event that happened in Sullivan County, New York, in the Catskills, that started Oliver's journey in speaking these vital texts, and specifically Frederick Douglass in this case.
1: Each year they had a theme, um, and so I said, he has so much that he has written that I could find something, you know, a 15-minute piece, and went, oh, that's a great idea, so I started doing that, and I did that for several years. Every year I would go, and um, I didn't dress in costume or anything. I just did maybe a 15-minute piece that related to whatever the theme they had chosen was. So that's pretty much where I started to do Frederick Douglass. What year was that? I would have to say that that had to be 1992-93. I came here in 1990 and immediately became involved with the Frederick Douglass breakfast. So I would say it had to be early 90s. And every year I went and did it probably for about five or maybe even six years.
0: Thank you, Oliver. I'm wondering if you can share uh, one of his speeches with us. You are highlighting Self-Made Man this year. And yes. that, that speech by Frederick Douglass was delivered in 1859. I'm not sure. Just share with us what, what you now will share with us. So, Oliver, I know that this year you have been highlighting Self-Made Man, and that's a motivational speech uh, of Frederick Douglass, which was delivered by him in 1859. And Frederick Douglass was an American abolitionist, a writer, an orator, a statesman, I mean, and much, much more. So please share with us, for you, who is Frederick Douglass and then what you'll be
1: reading for us. Well, he was also a woman's advocate. He advocated for women's rights as well and for the rights of the Native Americans. This particular speech that I chosen to focus on this year uh, was first delivered at what they call the Industrial Indian um, College or something of that nature, a, a very bogus name, because what they were doing, which they didn't offer to the uh Uh, African-American slaves, they were taking the Native Americans, putting them in this industrial school to brainwash them of their history. They considered them to be savages, so they wanted them to, to, um, they gave them the benefit of the doubt that they were uh, the owners of the land, because they were here first, Uh, They stole the land from them, whereas they bought the African-Americans thousands of miles from another continent. So with the Native Americans, they put them in an industrial school, supposedly training them for jobs and things like that. But they were stripping them of their culture is what basically. So what Frederick Douglass did in their support was he went to speak to them uh, to give them some courage as to how they could move through this part of their history and, and uh, benefit from it in a sense. So it is a motivational speech. So um, I'll, I'll read an excerpt from it. I hope it doesn't go too long, but um, this, is his es- this is the essence of what he thinks a self-made man should or should be, or actually is what makes a self-made man. He says, the natural reverence for all that is great in man has not always shown itself wise, but has often given us a wicked ruler for a righteous one, a false prophet for a true one, a corrupt preacher for a pure one, a man of war for a man of peace and a distorted and vengeful image of God for an image of justice and mercy. It is not my purpose to attempt here any comprehensive and exhaustive theory or philosophy on the nature of manhood I am here to speak to you of a peculiar type of manhood under the title of self made men. However, there is more, however, there is, in more respects than one, something like a solecism in this title. Properly speaking, the term self made men implies an individual independence of the past and present, which can really never exist. Our best and most valued acquisitions have been obtained either from our contemporaries or from those who have preceded us in the field of thought and discovery. We have all either begged, borrowed, or stolen. We have reaped where others have sown and that which others have strewn, we have gathered. It must in truth be said that no possible native force of character and no depth of wealth and originality can lift a man into absolute independence of his fellow men. And no generation of men can be independent of the preceding generation. The brotherhood and interdependence of mankind are guarded and defended at all points. I believe in individuality, but individuals are to the mass like waves to the ocean. I may say that by the term self-made men, I mean especially what to the popular mind the term least imports. Self-made men are the men who under peculiar difficulties and without the ordinary helps of favoring circumstances have attained knowledge, usefulness, power, and position and have learned from themselves the best uses to which life can be put in this world and in the exercises of these uses to build up worthy character. They are the men who owe little or nothing to birth, relationship, friendly surroundings, to wealth inherited or to early approved means of education, who are what they are without the aid of any favoring conditions by which other men usually rise in the world and achieve great results. Such men as these, whether found in one position or another, whether in the college or in the factory, whether professors or plowmen, whether Caucasians, Indian, Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-African are, made, are self-made men and are entitled to a certain measure of respect for their success and for approving to the world the grandest possibilities of human nature of whatever variety of race or color.
0: Thank you. That was Oliver King, a writer, actor, and orator who was just reading excerpts from Self-Made Man, a motivational speech of Frederick Douglass, which was delivered in 1859. Oliver, thank you so much for sharing that excerpt. Can you share why this is important in this moment for you?
1: I think because the... African-American community has always been disenfranchised here in this country. It continues after 200 years. We're still fighting to have that equity in our lives or feel that equity in our lives. It happens all the time, everywhere. And it's really a shame because there's no real reason for it. Even Frederick Douglass spoke back then that we, the African-American people, are not the cause of racism in this country. We didn't choose to come here, but since we have been here, it's never really been totally acknowledged how influential we were in building this country. And when I emphasize the word building, I mean, literally, we built the White House, we built the plantations, we built the banks, okay? We built the insurance company, we built Wall Street,
0: such important points. Thank you, Oliver. And now I want to bring up the extraordinary Lorraine Hansberry. She was a playwright and a writer. She was the first African-American woman author to have a play performed on Broadway. She's best known for the play, A Raisin in the Sun. And you, Oliver, were the first to produce and direct Sullivan County's first ever all African-American production by twice staging, kind of modernized version of A Raisin in the Sun. And that was back in 1990. And then again for the 50th anniversary of the film's premiere. So why Lorraine for you? And please share an excerpt.
1: Quickly going back to when I was in high school, I thought I had a, a bigger presence on stage than was being acknowledged. So by the time I hit my junior year, I asked the director if we could do a production of Raisin in the Sun. And he was completely shocked. Well, we don't have any women here. It's an all-boy school. I said, well, all of our African-American boys, we all have families. So we can ask our families to participate, our girlfriends to play the release. And we found the cast and we did it. Um, One of the main reasons was that I identified so much with it because here's a Black family from the ghettos of Chicago moving to a different area of Chicago, buying a home in a predominantly white neighborhood, and how they were shunned and almost they, they even approached them and tried to buy the house back from them after the family had received the father's insurance money. So I could identify with that. It wasn't the same circumstances. My father hadn't died and we, you know, we didn't go through the insurance money thing. My dad just decided to, you know, they had saved money. We bought the home, but it was the same type of reaction that we got when we moved to Queens, being one of the first families to move on that particular block. We were stared at as we walked down the street. We were, uh, uh, I remember going to get a haircut with my two older brothers And we went to an all white barbershop because Catholic school, we had to keep our hair a certain length. It was very strict dress code. We went to the barbershop. We sat there for over three hours while people came in after us, got served and left. And finally, the barber says "Uh, uh, we're about to close and we're sitting there being good Catholic boys and very respectful. It's like, well, we want to get our hair cut. And the guy finally says, well, I I don't know how to cut your hair. And we thought that was hysterical. What barber doesn't know how to cut hair, you know? So we went home and told our father. We we got past that, but we did go through those type of um what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, minute, not minute, but you know.
0: Well, I would call it discrimination, but
1: these like um, discriminatory, you know, responses about things. Then we also found out that it was just true that particular barber didn't know how to cut our hair, so we did it. We, we we accepted that and moved ahead.
0: So please share some words. Okay, so from... one
1: of the main speeches I remember, uh, or that I loved, it's a small reaction, but after after Walter Lee, the son, uh, loses the money in a scam, the other gentleman who was part of the scam had also been ripped off, and he comes to tell Walter about it, and Mama totally freaks out. Okay, she starts to break down. I mean, Mama is a very strong character and she she never cries about anything. But at this moment, after losing $10,000, which is a lot of money back in those days, she totally breaks down in tears and she starts to hit her son in anger or maybe desperation or frustration. But she has a few words she says to him. She says, I seen him night after night come in. And look at that rug. And then he'd look at me, the red showing in his eyes, the veins moving in his head. I seen him grow thin and old before he was 40, working and working and working like somebody's old horse, killing himself. And you, you give it all away in a day. Oh, God, look down here and show me the strength. Strength, strength.
0: How does that connect for you, Oliver, to this moment that we're living in? Those words of Lorraine Hansberry, the playwright and writer.
1: It's a timeless story of how people struggle to better their situations and how quickly something can go wrong. At the turn, you know, at the drop of a dime, at, at the, you know, the, uh, the flip of a second on the clock. Something can go wrong no matter, you know, they say the best laid plans and those types of things. And for mama, it was devastating because um, she always had the best hope for her son. She refused to go into this deal with him because she, she didn't trust it. And consequently, she was right. And she was, so many mixed emotions were caught up in her reaction to the, 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 faux pas is too gentle a word for it. But, the you know, what happened with having trusted her son with this first time ever amount of money, it's not like they can ever regain it.
0: Thank you. And now you've shared with me the connection that you felt with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, because of of who he was and what he represented, but also sharing the same last name. So even growing up, people would ask if you were related. I'm wondering if you could share with us your connection to MLK and what you're gonna be sharing with us.
1: Okay, uh, unlike Frederick Douglass, we could watch Martin Luther King on television and it was astounding. Um, of course, he was an a, a incredible preacher before he became a civil rights leader. So he was a powerful speaker. And um, again, when I was in high school, um, after his assassination, I have been involved in an oral interpretation club in my school um, as part of, uh, you know, uh, one of the programs, you know, the after school programs. Anyway, so I chose one of his speeches, of course, uh, the I Have a Dream speech uh, that he delivered at the Lincoln Memorial. And um, I won a prize. Okay, it was it was a competition. And uh, I'm not so sure if it was because of my delivery, but because of the words that were spoken. But what I've chosen today, which I think is absolutely amazing, is the fact that throughout his career, he was being pursued and suspected by the FBI and all of the major, you know, agencies in the country and everybody was talking about him. I mean, they would even leave the country to go discuss how to end his campaign. Um, He was under a lot of stress. But the last speech he gave before his assassination was delivered in support of sanitation workers. But he always had a subliminal message because, again, he too, like Frederick Douglass, was somewhat prophetic. He knew What might happen to him at any given moment. So um, his last speech is named, I've been to the mountaintop. I'm not sure if he gave it that title, but that's one of the main um, themes of his last speech on earth. So this is it. I've been to the mountaintop. If I were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of general and panoramic view of the whole human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough, can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up and wherever they are assembled today, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. And another reason I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we're going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history. But the demand didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. And also in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done, In a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. We aren't engaged in any negative protests and in any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be men we are determined to be people. We are saying that we are God's children and that we don't have to live like we are forced to live. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing that. What was it? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves got together something happened in Pharaoh's court and he could not hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves got together that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now let us maintain unity. Now we are going to march again and we've got to march again in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be and force everybody to see that there are hundreds of God's children here suffering, sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, wondering how this thing is going to come out. That is the issue. We aren't going to let any mace stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement and disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember when we were in that majestic struggle. We would move out of the street, out of the Baptist church day after day by the hundreds, and we would move out. That couldn't stop us. Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs forth, and they came. But we just went before the dogs, singing, Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Bull Connor would say, Turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know our history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the transphysics that we were about, that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. And we went before the fire hoses. We had known water, that couldn't stop us. We just went on before the dogs and we would look at them and we'd go on before the water hoses and we would look at it and we'd just go on singing. Over my head, I see freedom in the air. And then we would be thrown in the paddy wagons. And sometimes we would be stacked in there like sardines in a can. And they would throw us in saying, take them off. And they did. And we would just go in the paddy wagon singing, we shall overcome. And every now and then, we'd get put in jail. And we'd see the jailers looking through the windows and being moved by our prayers and being moved by our words and our songs. And there was a power there and we won our struggle. Now, we've got to go on just like that. I call upon you to be with us on Monday. We need all of you and you know what's beautiful to me is to see all of these people. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preachers? Somehow the preacher must be be an Amos and say, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. I'll stop there.
0: Thank you. That was Oliver King. Reading from Dr. Martin Luther King's final speech. I've been to the mountaintop. Thank you, Oliver. Anything you can conclude with that will uh, be words for us connected to what you've been speaking to us about and these excerpts from these uh, extraordinarily vital leaders That you have been sharing with us, Frederick Douglass, Lorraine Hansberry, and Lorraine Hansberry and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, So if we don't eradicate racism and misunderstanding and disconnectedness with each other, as Martin Luther King said, the whole world is doomed.
1: That is very true. America is the most diversified country on the planet. And in their beginning years, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution were all documents of freedom, their freedom from European bondage, so to speak. They felt that they were being oppressed by their motherlands. But the strange thing is they came here and did the exact same thing to other people that they thought were less than themselves. The ideals that were set down in the very the very beginnings of this country, the establishment of the United States of America, were both incredible documents of freedom, the, the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence. But they didn't offer it to everyone, which they should have, especially anyone born on this continent before it was officially the United States of America. Um, Anyone born on the land should be an immediate citizen and given all the freedom and the rights allowed to those people. Um, That's what it says in the Constitution. So um, I think that it's important that we continue to live up to that and keep acknowledging that fact. I think that's what Frederick Douglass wanted to do back in the early 19th century. And that's also what Martin Martin Luther King was talking about in the beginning of the 20th century. Let's live up to the ideals that were that was set down in the founding of our country. Let's bring them to life and live them in their truest form. I think that would be the solution to all the problems that we are having.
0: Thank you so much, Oliver.
1: You're very welcome. Anytime. Anytime.
0: I've been speaking with writer, actor and orator. G. Oliver King. He brings to life United States history by focusing on Black history as essential to advancing equity and empowerment. I want to thank you again for joining me for this Trailer Talk conversation.
1: You're quite welcome. Anytime. Anytime.
0: This is one of three episodes with Oliver King. You're welcome to listen to the others by going to the archives. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.